Our first speaker of the week is Gary George. Most of you know Gary from various conferences like this, and some of you even come from that place called Massachusetts and know him from that state as well. Uh, it's been great to get to know Gary. I first got to know him on the basketball court when we were down at Blue Mountain, and I have the bruises to be reminded of how good a basketball player he is. But we've developed as good friends and brothers, and so he's going to come and minister at this time. And the title of his first session is Whitfield, God's Oracle. George, Gary? Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Hi, everybody. Good to be with you all. Trust the Lord is going to bless our time and uh, we'll be edified and go away from this place saying it was good for us to have been here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just a couple of scriptures as introductions to the man we're going to talk about this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, reading in the King James Version. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust, oh, excuse me, I want verse 2 actually, 2 verse true. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much, the King James says contention, but probably better translated with much conflict. Turn now to the book of Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. <clears throat> Verse 1. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke or spoke in a manner that a great multitude, both of the Jews, and also of the Greeks believed. I want to put the emphasis on so spoke or spoke in such a way and back to Thessalonians that he preached the word with boldness. Um, you might ask, you know, why, why do we uh, fit in George Whitfield into a, into a Bunyan conference? Well, let me give you some justification for this. If you're a Bunyan fan, he... Uh, Whitfield himself actually wrote the preface to a new edition of a Bunyan work, of Bunyan, Bunyan's works, and he wrote this. He says, if there is a bench in heaven, John Bunyan is the archbishop. So you Bunyan fans can say uh, he's right in your category. He was a lover of Bunyan. He actually carried Bunyan's works with him wherever he went, as well as Matthew Henry's commentaries with him, too. Um, you might ask, why, why Whitfield, and why have I chosen Whitfield? I was asked last year to speak, and uh, within minutes I knew that I wanted to speak on Whitfield. Just up to that time, I had spent about a full year reading about Whitfield. I had 30 years ago, uh, when I was first saved, over 30 years ago, uh, the gentleman that God used in my salvation was a Canadian, and his middle name was Moody. He was born just a few months after D.L. Moody died. His father named him after D.L. Moody. And he became an admirer, too, of George Whitfield. And shortly after I was saved, he introduced me to George Whitfield. And I couldn't get enough of reading up on George Whitfield. So that was number one. Um, George Whitfield is probably known best as being an open-air preacher. The church that I was saved in did open-air preaching, and I've been doing open-air preaching 
since uh, 1975. Um, I'm from New England. He was involved in the New England Great Awakenings. He uh, preached in my hometown, which is now Leicester, as well as he preached in Worcester. He preached on the Worcester Common, which is an area of ground that I've been preaching on uh, since 1982. Um, he traveled the area through where I live. Like I said, he preached in my own town. He preached in Boston, at Boston Common. I preached there. I uh, kind of followed his steps. He uh, came through our, our neck of the woods, and he stopped at a town called Brookfield, which is about 10 miles from us. They have a landmark called the Whitfield Rock. I brought Dr. Worrell there, actually, last year when he came after this conference, and uh, that was actually my first time seeing it. I went to where he was uh, buried. He's buried, as you know, in Newburyport, Massachusetts, underneath the pulpit of the church. That's where he asked to be buried. There's two other caskets that are buried there, and if you go there, uh, the tour guide will bring you downstairs. You, you don't know where. It's musty and, and smelly and whatnot, and uh, there it is. The casket now is so it's locked up. I'll tell you a little bit more of the details why it's locked. But, uh, and I got to stand in the pulpit that he preached in and in the, in the church that he was buried in. 6,000 people attended the funeral. Uh, that particular Presbyterian church was one of the largest churches in America at that time. And the last reason why I'm preaching on George Whitfield, that his first name is the same as my last name. So let's move on here. <laughs> To have one hour to speak on George Whitfield is obviously injustice, and I can't do justice to him and what I'd like to say about him in one hour, so I'm going to kind of give you snippets, and I know most of you are preachers out here or do preaching, so I'm thinking to myself, how can I profit this body of preachers best? And I can't think of a man more influential in my life as a preacher that could be as influential to you as in your life as a preacher, hoping that God would somehow use what I'm about to say about this man and his legacy and how God can use him who's now dead. Hopefully, he can still speak to us today. And you can go away encouraged and, and strengthened and bold and, and so speak that multitudes might believe. I chose that verse 14.1. It, it just, it, it's so simple, but yet it's no doubt very profound. And there's some depth there to what, is, what does it mean when he says, he so spoke. He spoke in a way. There is obviously something about the preacher that God uses in the revelation of salvation to the souls of men. And there's none greater than, I think, George Whitfield that was used of God in that way, at least. <clears throat> well, let me give you a quick biographical sketch, very quick. He was born in Gloucester, England, in, uh, in uh, December 16, 1714. <clears throat> He died September 30th, 1770. So he had a relatively short life of 56, much like Jonathan Edwards, who I think was about 54. Anybody remember the actual date? About that, about the same age, and a little before uh, he was born, I believe, uh, a little bit before Whitfield died is when Edwards died. Well, anyway. Whitfield's father died at the age of two. His mother remarried. The marriage was, was sour. It didn't last long. They separated. Uh, they had a, an inn called the Bell's Tavern. And Whitfield quit school at a young age to help his mother run the inn along with a, with a brother or two of his. And that's where they claimed that he may have met some of the theatrical people, some of the actors that may have stayed at his inn. Some have made a lot about this. And also Whitfield, when he was a 
a, a student in school, he was very interested in drama and theatrics and, and acting and things of that sort. They think that he got a lot of his antics from them. It's questionable, but uh, whether he did or didn't, he certainly was an animated speaker. His mother tried to collect enough money to get him to go to Oxford University, Pembroke College, which was a part of Oxford University. <clears throat> he was a poor boy, but she scraped up enough mother, uh, money to at least get him enrolled. And he uh, went in as what is called a servitor. His job was basically an errand boy for the rich people. Take care of their laundry, go out and buy them some uh, groceries or whatever they required. That's how he earned his side money to be able to pay for his education. But it was about this time when he was in college that he began to become religious and started thinking about God and the things of the Lord. And uh, he took a religious, a very religious route. <clears throat> he was very self-disciplined. He uh, was very fervent in his uh, religious endeavors. He became aesthetic. He was very kind to people, charitable. And uh, there was a woman that caught, uh, that caught that he caught her attention. And she thought, boy, he would do good to meet the Wesley boys. So she introduced him. Actually, she told Charles Wesley, she said, you got to meet this young man. He's, he's enthusiastic. He's fervent. He's religious. He would fit right in with your group. <clears throat> you know, the group that I'm talking about was that holy club which is, you could say, the early stages of what becomes later known as Methodism. Some want to claim uh, Charles Wesley as being the father of Methodism, but from what I have read, it could be, John, it could be George Whitfield as well that could be the father of Methodism, but we'll, we'll address that in a little while. Um, during this time period, he, he was very rigid and disciplined in his lifestyle, and he he went overboard, even in the minds of the Holy Club people. And they would pray and fast. They would start their mornings off with fervent prayer for hours and read the scriptures and do all these religious-type things. Winfield went overboard. He fasted and he denied his body the natural things that it needed for its own nourishment. He would pray in the snow, for instance. He was... He was, he was radical that way, uh, bizarre, you could say. And it got to a point that he actually got sick from this fasting period that he had imposed upon himself to a point that he almost literally died. And if you know much, thank you very much. If you know much about Whitfield's life, you'll, you'll recall how that Whitfield often had stomach problems. And he often vomited before he preached. He would vomit up blood many, many times, and even afterwards later in the evenings. Um, he was converted then in 1735 because Charles Wesley provided him with a book called Life of God, The Life of God in the Soul of Man by Schugel. He read the book, and heaven came down and glory filled his soul. He became a child of God instantaneously, and he, he already got a reputation even among the Holy Club people as someone that was unique and distinct from them as far as his, uh, his understanding of, of Christ and salvation and so on, that they hadn't yet come to that point yet in their uh, spiritual journey. I'm going to move up a little bit. In, in 1741, this was shortly after he had come to America. 
and he had gone to the Edwards home, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards' home. Up to this point, he hadn't really thought about getting married. But he was so impressed with Sarah and how much of a helpmeet she was to Jonathan and saw how they sort of collaborated together. He stayed in their home, and that put the desire in his heart to want to seek after a wife. Many of his colleagues did not think that was the wisest thing for him, but he was desirous for a wife. Howell Harris, who was a friend of his in, in, in Wales, had a girlfriend that he pawned off to George Whitfield and said, she wants to marry me, but I think you should marry her. <laughs> well, he had, he had a courtship of four days, and he couldn't find a minister to marry him because they were against his getting married, but he finally had a private ceremony, got married. His, her name was Elizabeth. They had four miscarriages. They had one child who survived, but only lived four months. And he had expectations that this was going to be a great preacher of the gospel. He had high hopes and was so thankful that a, a man-child was born and his desire was that he was going to step into the pulpit and be a man of God and feed the flock of God. But after four months, the child died. Whitfield says that God picked my flower, but not angrily, but just resigned to the sovereignty of God. Whitfield was such a fiery, fervent preacher, and gospel preaching was what he he hungered for all the time. Even the day of his son's funeral, he had already preached three times that day. And when the, when the church bell tolled, that was the call for him to go to his own child's funeral. His wife died in 1768. She was 11 years older than him. <clears throat> she died at the age of 65. They had a strange relationship in some ways. She was a spiritual woman. She did help him oftentimes in his, his gospel efforts. She wrote lots of letters. She traveled with him on occasions, but one time they traveled together. They were in America. He got ill. They had recommended that he go to Bermuda to, to rat, relax and get that comfort. And somehow his wife got on the wrong boat, wrong ship. She ended up, they, they, did, they lost contact with, another, with one another for two years. She basically said, George, that's enough. I don't think I'm going to be a companion in your travels anymore. <clears throat> Let me give you some of the accolades, some of the things that people have said about George Whitfield. Spurgeon read him over and over in his journals and was profoundly shaped by his methods. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is Calvinistic methodology in evangelism. Uh, Wilbur Wilberforce heard him at the age of 10 years old. Sarah Edwards says he makes less of doctrine than our American preachers generally do and aims at affecting the heart. He's a born orator. And I should add that when, when Whitfield preached in that Northampton church before Jonathan Edwards and his wife in, in, in the congregation there, it is said that Jonathan Edwards wept through the whole sermon. John Wesley said that George Whitfield's preaching produced probably more conversions than any one man since the apostolic period. And Jonathan Edwards preached at his funeral. There were many funerals actually held for Whitfield, just in case I forget. Um, 
there were 6,000 people, I said, that crowded into the church, and there were many more thousands that crowded around the church when he was buried there or, or where the funeral was conducted in Newburyport, but they had funerals across America and in England. That's where John Wesley had taken the, the, the major funeral, the one that's best known. Uh, he, had, if, if, if you remember, also had planted a, uh, an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia, and was a big influence upon the governor of Georgia and many people in Georgia over the years for his dedication to orphanage work and so on. And they said that when he died, that all of the black cloth that Georgia could produce was taken, and pieces were taken of black cloths and put upon the lapels and on on the dresses of women and men all across the, the state of Georgia, so much so that they actually had none left to even uh, give to anybody. Eighty percent of the American colonists heard him speak at least once. In 1740, does anybody want to take a guess? What do you think the population of America was? Right now it's 300 million plus, right? What do you think the population was? I'm very interested in populations, by the way. Uh, just to give you an, a hint, or does anybody want to take a guess for us? Okay, good. I'm going to give you a hint. In 1900, the population of the United States was 100 million. In 1740, the population of America was 1 million. That seems like teeny, but uh, that's what it was. And of course, the majority of all Americans were at that time um, congregated up and, up and down the East Coast. But 80% of the American colonists heard him speak at least once. He preached to crowds larger than any gathering ever held in America, ever. As a matter of fact, he preached on the Boston Common. There were more people on the Common than in the whole city of Boston. The population of Boston, and Boston and Philadelphia, by the way, were the two biggest cities at the time. Boston had... Some say 17, some I've read 20, and 17,000. There were 23,000 that had gathered on the Boston Common to hear George Whitfield. Um, there were 20 ministers. These were men that were in the ministry that attributed their conversion as ministers to the preaching of the gospel, gospel through George Whitfield. Whitfield preached 40 to 50 hours a week and started sometimes at 5 o'clock in the morning. He preached 18,000 sermons, and he spoke to over 10 million hearers. It is said that Whitfield was the most popular man in the world. The most popular man in the world. Ben Franklin said this about him, and as you know, Franklin became a close companion of his. Franklin was the one that heard him speak in Philadelphia, and he couldn't believe the lion-like voice of Whitfield's. He actually moved back and moved back and estimated that his voice carried one full mile. I don't think I could blow through this and go a hundred yards. I wish I had a voice like George's. Mine's cracking already. Well, anyway... Franklin said, there's hardly another minister of the gospel alive who can bring to life the truth and relevancy of the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, almost he persuades me to be a Christian. Benjamin Franklin never came to faith in Christ, and Whitfield stayed in his house many times. Benjamin Franklin was his primary printer of his sermons. 
and actually made Benjamin Franklin rich from those sermons. He stayed in his house many times. They were close companions. And he thought of Whitfield as being the ace orator of all times. And ironically, Benjamin Franklin did not believe in the deity of Christ, nor did he believe in the inspiration of scriptures. John Adams said of him, I know of no philosopher, theologian, or moralist, either ancient or modern, more profound, more infallible than Whitfield. George Washington said, upon his lips, the gospel appears even to the coarsest of men, as sweet and as true as in fact it is. John Newton may have been converted or assisted to some extent by the reading of his sermons. Let me give you some of the famous sayings that, again, I'm just giving you snippets here, things that I hope will uh, maybe stick with you. God may use some of this stuff to uh, impact us. Here are some of the famous sayings of Whitfield. Sudden death is sudden glory. I preach as a dying man to dying men. I know you've used that before. You've heard it before. This is where it come from, comes from. He says, God, and I love this prayer, and this is why in some ways he's a model for me. God grant that I may be of a Catholic, small c, spirit. A Catholic spirit. And God did use him, I believe, in lots of ways. And this is why he was a novelty. Because he actually broke, that, broke down denominational distinctions. This was unique. This is why he was not, in the eyes of the ecclesiastical world, highly favored. And there were writings against him. Because his emphasis was on the new birth. He wanted to play down, as it were, not that he was light on theology, don't misunderstand me, but he was very high on the doctrine of the gospel of the grace of God, uh, and that's what he wanted to promulgate. He says this about man. Man is half devil and half beast. He says, let a man go to the grammar school of faith and repentance before he goes to the university of election and predestination. I love this one too. If the Pope would lend me his pulpit, I would gladly proclaim the righteousness of Christ therein. How many of you would preach in a Catholic church? If you were given the opportunity, shame on you if you won't. That's my spirit, at least, and I think that's George Whitfield's spirit. I think we need to have that kind of a spirit. And I am dead set against the idolatry and everything else that is in it. But how we need to take a bold step sometimes to get the gospel. And if any, matter of fact, I was asked, I'll just throw this in. A few years ago, our church was doing a ministry in a nursing home. And we did it for about three years. And uh, I think they bumped us up because of bingo, if I'm not mistaken. But um, whatever the reasons were, a few months later, I get a phone call from one of the nun, a nun. And her name was Sister Mary. I don't know who she was, but she said, uh, Pastor Gary, would you be willing to come next month? We're going to have a service in the nursing home. It's going to be a memorial service for the, for the dead, for those that have died in the last year, and the families are going to come, and there's going to be a group of clergymen coming. And she said, and I would like you to be the preacher. I said, you'd like me to preach? Put me on the list. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and there was, a, well, there was a Roman Catholic there, and there were other, other denominational uh, pastors there, et cetera. And uh, I, I thought, what am I going to preach on? You know, I, I, I got, 
this is a one-shot deal kind of thing, you know. I'll probably never get asked again. These men may never hear what the, ho hopefully what I can say. And, uh, and these poor nursing home folks, they need to hear the gospel before they breathe their last breath. Well, I decide to preach on the necessity for the new birth. And I'll tell you, these clergymen, they turned their backs on me, this Catholic priest. The next day, that was, I think, on a Saturday. The next day, this is what I was told from people that heard him, said, if, this is what he said to the Catholic congregation. He says, if anybody tells you, you're, what, are you born again, tell them you've been baptized. That was his response to the gospel. Anyway, Whitfield says, I am weary in thy work, but not weary of thy work. He says, I'd rather burn out than rust out. You've heard that one. And he often would say this when he preached. I weep for you because you won't weep for yourself. And there wasn't ever a time, hardly, where George Whitfield did not shed tears in his presentation of the gospel. Let me talk a little bit about some of the opposition that Whitfield got entangled in. First of all, he was despised by the magisterium of the Church of England. As you know, he became a gospel outdoor preacher. His first sermon that he preached, he was, uh, it wasn't long either, even after he was saved. Um, he was a young man in his early 20s, and he preached in the church that he was baptized in. Now remember, this is the Church of England, St. Mary's of Crypt, C-R-Y-P-T, I forget, something like that. Um, so he preached there. They said that 15 people went mad after hearing his sermon. I don't know exactly what that means. It really is never elaborated on. But obviously the impact that this man had on people's lives was being overtly recognized. And right off the bat, he gained a reputation. First of all, he was young. He uh, didn't have a, a great formal education behind him. Um, I don't believe he, he had some in his family that were preachers, but he took the bold step of deciding to do outdoor preaching. As he saw people coming from the coal mines and the ships and in the shipyards, and he, he thought that these are the people that need to hear the word. These people often work on Sundays, and they're not able to go to church. So he decided that he would go where those that were in the coal mines would come out for a break and, so to speak, have their lunch. So he stood there, and he raised his lion-like voice, and he began by saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me. He that believes on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And he began to herald the gospel before all these coal miners. They came out, their faces were all dusty coal, uh, covering their face, dark and whatnot. And before the end of the sermon, the majority of them had tunnels of tears running down their cheeks from the power of the gospel that was being generated into the hearts of these listeners. And as a result of him, he saw the success of it. He saw the impact that gospel preaching outdoors could have. Right away, a red flag went up in the Church of England. <laughs> like, whoa, taking, and of course, you know, Whitfield always preached with a robe on. 
No matter what, a gown. It could have been 97 degrees out. He still had his gown and his cap on and whatnot, and he would be out there preaching. And to them, it was sacrilegious that God's word would be proclaimed in an everyday environment, in a park. He stood on rocks, on hills, on tables. Even used to carry with him a, a portable pulpit that he would keep in the back of his uh, uh, chaise, a little thing that his, his horse would, would, would take him around with. It was sometimes a two or three passenger one, and he would stick this little portable pulpit. It was almost like a plate bin kind of, but it was elevated. He'd step right into it, and it had like a little railing in front, and that's what he would use oftentimes in set up camp. Well, that was very, very uh, sacrilegious in the eyes of the Church of Eng England. Another thing was it was interdenominational. The reason why it became that was because when he went out, there was no discrimination. Whether you were Roman Catholic, whether you were Church of England, Presbyterian, no matter what it was, you were invited to come and to hear the Word of God. He could address the large audiences of people with the motley backgrounds that they may have had religiously. And that was not something that was done in those days. Everybody sort of stuck to their, uh, their religious denomination, but not, not so with him in this sense. Um, his style was a little difficult for some of them to take as well because he was flamboyant, he was emotional, he was passionate, and he had a voice that was powerful. And he insisted, probably above everything else, he insisted on the necessity of the new birth. And it's my conjecture that I think our modern day understanding and preaching of the new birth is something that can go back to Whitfield. I'm not saying it wasn't preached beforehand, but I believe that he was the one that placed the strongest emphasis on the new birth above anyone else up to his time. And I think that tradition is carried on to a large degree because of his influence. As a matter of fact, when he was preaching in Boston one time, a group of reporters had gathered around him. Uh, they said they, they had gathered like 4,000 people. The town only had about maybe 300 families in the town, but the reason why, and I didn't realize this until later writings, that I mentioned earlier how newspapers was kind of a recent phenomena, and they became, newspapers be, got circulated, and guess who was, you know, the, uh, the main ticket of the night? It was going to be George Whitfield. You know, they didn't have a whole lot to do advertising over. Uh, there weren't any indoor arenas. There weren't any sports places that they could gather. But so what Whitfield would do is he would have his itinerary placed in the newspaper. And they were very interested where he, where he would go. So they would say that Whitfield was going to be in such and such a place at approximately such and such a time. Then Whitfield had what you would call forerunners, ones that would run before him and would announce, Whitfield is coming, Whitfield is coming. He'll be here tomorrow at 12 o'clock. Well, the word would spread all around the villages in the, in the communities in that area. And it said that, uh, for instance, the farmers, they would be they would be toiling in the fields and they would look over the hills and they would see clouds of dust and they knew what it was that people were coming on horseback and they were going to flock to where Whitfield was going to be arriving and he hadn't even arrived yet. Before he arrived, they would start hymn singing. They would sing psalms and the people would gather together in circles and they would wait and when Whitfield came, he'd have his little pulpit or 
in this particular case there in Brookfield, he stood upon this rock that's now called the Whitfield Rock. And he preached. They could not fit him in any church in America. Crowds were too big. He had to go outdoors at this point in his life. And they would listen to him and, and oh, amazing things. Now, you might ask the question, that may come up later. Well, what about some of the, <clears throat> some of the reactions to, uh, to these services that were going on? Some were falling down, and especially with Wesley, too, as well. There was uh, strange manifestations that were going on. Whitfield and Wesley, to some extent, too, they both tried to ignore it, and at times they, they dispelled it. As you know, when uh, Jonathan Edwards preached in North, uh, Northfield, no, when Enfield, excuse me, Enfield, Connecticut, that great sermon known as the Sinners in the hand, Hands of an Angry God, which had been preached, by the way, previously by Edwards in his hometown in Northampton, had no effects on anybody, as far as we know. But when he preached in Enfield, God somehow, and this, this should encourage us, um, I was preaching Saturday on, on, in the open air on Main Street, and I'm preaching there for like 45 minutes, and it's a new area. We just set it up two blocks from our church. I'm very, very excited about it. And uh, I know I'm a, an oddball to, to people that are going by. You know, this guy's out here with a microphone and PA system and standing there preaching the gospel. And, and I'm, I'm kind of concerned, why, isn't, why aren't people stopping and listening and cars are, you know, lined up, I mean, uh, before the traffic lights and... and the Lord just gave this as a little encouragement to me, I feel, that within a minute or two after that, two cars stopped on the other side of the street, rolled their windows down, and, lis and was listening. I actually took the, the, the uh, amplifier, uh, the speaker, and I turned it right between the two cars so they would be able to hear very clearly. But I, me I mention this because, you know, here Edwards preaches in his home church, no effects. He goes to Enfield by invitation, and the effects were dynamic. We've all read about it and heard about it. What an amazing scene. I went there just last uh, fall on a tour, and uh, that's all they have now is a stone because the building's you know, destroyed by fire, but that's where the, the church had been planted. But what a night that was, must have been. But the point I'm trying to get to, while and, and this is Jonathan Edwards, a man of a totally different style of preaching. A man that basically stood in the pulpit, you know, read, not word for word necessarily, but he basically had a script that he read. And uh, Whitfield, on the other hand, he was an extemporaneous preacher. Forget the notes. I mean, he just had, he was filled with the word. He was like John Bunyan. They say when you pricked him that he bled the scriptures. That's what came out of him. Well, that's what Whitfield was like. He just bled the scriptures, and he could just step into the pulpit and began to preach. And it seemed like the Spirit of God was filling the place, and the word was going out with power, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Well, anyway, even when Edwards was preaching, and this is another encouragement, you may not be of the Whitfield style, but it's not Whitfield, it's not Wesley. It's the word of God that th where the power lies. And let us never forget that. We'll get more into that tonight. It's the word of God that is life-giving and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, here Edwards is preaching. People are falling down. They're, they're, they're shouting out. They're screaming. 
they had to stop the service several times and various ones had to go into the audience and basically, like a, a police force or a bunch of bouncers, they had to say, calm down, relax, listen to the word. You know, you're carrying on in a way that's interrupting with the preaching of the word. I'm getting a little animated myself here. Sorry, folks. But he turns me on, so to speak. Um, excites me. Uh, encourages me to uh, believe that God is able to, to, to uh, use us feeble creatures, even in a day, and this is kind of the, the long, you know, the, the bottom line is here we are in the 21st century. We can hardly get one person to come into our church, you know, to hear the word of God. There's a dearth in the land in some ways. Others may have a different interpretation of that, but my, at least New England, it is tough grounds to, uh, to furrow in there, to, uh, to dig up. Um, you can testify to that, being up in Maine. Your dad had ho horrible uh, experiences that way, but uh, it's when the Spirit of God moves, he's going to move, and he's going to do what he pleases, and we just have to be uh, a vessel prepared and meet for the Master's use so that when that occasion arises, we can go forth with the Word. Um, Whitfield, like I said, he was an extemporaneous preacher. He didn't necessarily... Now, I'm not saying that he didn't have any, any pre-thought to what he was going to speak on. But for the most part, he was carried along by the Spirit, if you will, and he preached the word as the word of God came to his mind. He would enunciate it. He gave phenomenal examples. He had people so, so involved in his message that he was, he was actually giving an illustration, and there was a sailor that was in the audience that was listening to him, and he's describing some some something that went on on, on, on the seas in, in a ship and somebody went overboard and this sailor shouted out, somebody's overboard, just out of a spontaneous reaction. He was so involved in, in, the, in the story that was being told by Whitfield that he was actually experiencing it himself. What I like about Whitfield is this Catholic spirit of his. His love of the gospel was so great that what he was after was the salvation of the souls of men. And he wasn't on a rampage. He wasn't trying to, uh, uh, you know, be a, uh, an ecumenist. That wasn't his goal. But he did want to give opportunity to pe for people to hear the word of God. He was, he was partly responsible for the starting of, the, of uh, Dartmouth College, the University of Pennsylvania, um, he had preached at Harvard University, Princeton University. He had some, some import in that, and, and, uh, and Yale University as well. As you know, the Edwards family had some connections there, as Jonathan Edwards was one of the early students back in its earliest days of starting. Whitfield had an impact uh, unlike anybody that, that I have ever read or ever known as far as um, his influence on the crowds and the, and the in the papers, and, the, and he was far from thinking of himself as being a celebrity. As a matter of fact, he, had, he was such a man burdened for souls, and this was really unique in that day, that he loved the, quote, Negro people. And he preached to them, which is some, the white preachers wouldn't preach to them because they, some of them didn't even think that those black men had souls hard to believe, but Whitfield had the fondness for them, and he employed a lot of them and even started a, a school for the Negroes. Um, Whitfield had a, a charitable spirit, and he had a social one, too. 
um, it wasn't just strictly gospel, 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 which is obviously the most important thing, but he saw the relevance of reaching out to people in practical ways. He, he was one of the ones that I, could, I think, again, you could probably trace back fundraising to Whitfield, who took offerings from the crowds of people. And those that gathered in the open ears, he, he ended up collecting zillions of dollars, and it all went to the orphanage. And he had an accountability partners, too, that he was involved with, just to watch out for that end of things as well. Now, I've already preached 50 minutes, I think. I, I, I know you're sp I'm supposed to end at 3, but I'll probably be a little earlier than that. I don't want to just keep carrying on. Um, but um, it's interesting... Well, for, let me tell you this. First of all, he came to America seven times from England. He had gone to Scotland, to Ireland, to Wales, to Holland. Uh, he had been to Bermuda. In every place he went, he preached, even when he crossed the boat. And to cross a boat from England to America, it would depend on, on the, the ocean conditions and the weather, the winds and so on. could take as much as six weeks. And oftentimes, people would die on the ship because it was risky. Um, the food, they couldn't refrigerate it like they could can these days, of course. So the food was always, depending on how long the trip get, get, gets, it could get spoiled and it could cause some disease. And oftentimes, many died and they had burials right there at sea and Mr. Whitfield was ready right on the spot to go to dying people and give them the gospel to the captains of the ships and to anybody on board that would listen to him. And... Uh, he just had no reservations about preaching the gospel. And this was unique in, in, in lots of ways. This wasn't common. As you know, the Wesleys had crossed, crossed over from England to, to come to Georgia too, and they wanted to try to start a work. It was a flop. They actually got chased out of Georgia, and it's, it was on their way back where, I believe it was John Wesley that said, I came to convert the Indians, but who's going to convert me? Through the influence of the Moravians on the ship, he began to question whether or not he was a true child of God and was greatly troubled about it. It wasn't until some time later in the reading, from the reading of the word that he felt that warm bosom, that warm burning in the bosom that he describes as the way he felt how conversion happened in his particular life. Well, there was one occasion when uh, there was a man that had gone to a uh, angrily to hear Whitfield. He, was, he just despised the gospel and what Whitfield was doing. Many of these could handle you know, a clergyman in the pulpit, but a so-called clergyman out in the fields, I mean, they didn't have paved streets. We're talking now maybe something like downtown Philadelphia or Boston might have had something solid to stand on, but this was based basically dirt and cow fields where, where the preaching would go on. Well, anyway, there was a man that came with a bag of stones. His intention was to, to stone Whitfield while he was preaching. Well, he, he first you know, stood there, and that's what they did. They didn't sit. They basically stood. He was listening to him. He, he gathered uh, the stones, in his, started gathering the stones in his hand, and uh, as he's listening, he dropped a stone, and uh, he took another one out of the bag, and he's holding on to it, getting ready to throw it. He dropped the next stone, and he's listening, and he's getting a little more involved in the preaching. Got another stone out, he dropped it again, and another one, and he dropped it again, and another. Before you know it, he had no stones left. He's listening to the preaching, and amazingly, God converted him, and he became a well-known preacher. His last name was Tanner. 
Amazing how God can change the heart of man in a moment of time. So don't ever think that anyone who might seem to be so angry. When I was married, uh, I had a faithful man that preached the gospel. My uncle was so mad at the gospel being preached in, in that environment. He didn't know the gospel anyway. I'm sure it was the gospel itself. Got so mad, he almost tore the door off when he went out because he couldn't stay that long. People can be so angry at God one day, but yet God can bring the highest, the lowest, and humble their hearts to bring them to saving faith in himself. Well, Whitfield, he wanted to go actually into New Hampshire, and he wanted to go to Canada. Uh, and this was going to be his last journey. And he was being discouraged by people because he was not well. His health was failing. He was sick as a dog, and he would still preach. And, and he just had a fervent desire to want to go. He reached the borders of New Hampshire. He preached the word there. And then he said, I must go to bed. I mean, he was so sick. They took him to a nearby town called Newburyport where uh, he stayed there uh, with Pastor Parsons, I believe it was. And um, as the night, new, night grew on, he became, it was obvious that he was dying. He was dying of, uh, he couldn't breathe. His stomach and whatever his internal organs were just giving out on him. He had a horrible time breathing, something that probably could have been easily cured today. Some kind of asphyxiation was going on, and he couldn't catch his breath. And um, sometime in the evening, he, was, he had been upstairs in his bedroom. He had gone downstairs to get some hot milk for himself. And then he began to climb the stairs up to his room, and he had a little saucer with a candle on top of it. And as he's starting to mount the stairs, suddenly the pounding started going on in the on the doors of the house that he was staying. There were crowds of people that realized that Whitfield was in town and that he might be dying. And they were pounding on the doors and said, we want Whitfield, we want to hear Whitfield, we want to hear Whitfield. And the pastor was, looked up at Whitfield and said, you know, this is, you're in no shape to preach. He said to him, open the doors, open the doors. And there the crowd flooded in. And there they were at the bottom of the stairwell, just packed in, in the house and on the, on the outside of the house as they're listening. And for the last time, Whitfield raised his voice. He preached. It says that he preached so long that the candle that he had in his hand burnt all the way down to the bottom. Then he went upstairs. He died at 6 o'clock in the morning. As a matter of fact, when he, when he died, they didn't want to believe that he died. They had people come. They were actually patting down his body with, with warm towels, thinking that they could, they could bring him back to life or that they could, they, you know, they, they, they didn't have like coroners like us that can determine the time of, of death with certainty. They thought maybe he had swooned into some kind of a, a, a coma or whatever, and they, want, they, they wanted to revive him because he was so so dear to so many people and his impact on the lives of so many hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people was now before their eyes and they had hopes they could possibly keep him alive but it was the Lord's timing and the Lord took him away and then of course now it's nothing but the epilogues now it's the eulogies rather where now we hear uh, what kind of a man he was and so many had so many uh, awesome and, and wonderful things to say of him like I said, he had requested that his body 
be placed beneath the pulpit uh, in that church. It's a Presbyterian church in Newburyport. And uh, they had done it. And my understanding, I actually, the man that the Lord used in my salvation had told me, and he was born in 1900, he said that in the early 1900s that he had actually gone and seen the body. You could actually see the physical body uh, of, of uh, the remains of Whitfield. And um, even as, as late as in the early 1900s, somebody from England who had a great reverence for Whitfield had actually come and he had stolen some of the bones out of the casket. And he apparently put it in a, uh, a container. He actually got his wrist, took his wrist and, and brought it to England and they ended up catching him. And they never got the bones back, but they got, they got the, uh, the little crate that he had it in. I've seen it. They actually have it in the church. And they'll show you that this was the, the box that the thief had taken Whitfield's bones in. And I just read, just in the last couple of weeks, this is going to sound really weird. Uh, and I, I, wouldn't, I don't go this far. I don't care if you, you know, give me his head. Um, you know, I'm not going to bow down to it. Don't worry, folks. But anyway, they... Drew University, which is, is that in Virginia? Uh, where's Drew University? Who knows? Nobody? Anyway, it's, you've heard of it, right? Well, they have his finger in their, in their, in their, in their possession in the college so, somehow. So I don't know how his body parts are flying around, but maybe because he had body parts thrown at him. I'm not sure exactly what the reason is, but uh, the kind of respect that he got is the respect that he deserves. And I just think, and the reason why I picked Whitfield, because I think he's a for me, he's a real important figure in church history. And uh, I think he has impacted evangelism more than any figure, along with Wesley, I must say, and Charles Wesley, too. And I could say some things about them, but maybe we'll leave them for the question and answer period. And I'm not a Wesleyan scholar, so I might not be, to be able to help you a lot, but I'll just throw one little crazy thing out, too, here, um, since a lot of crazy things being said anyway. Here's another one. Wesley, uh, Whitfield had gone over to, uh, to see John Wesley, and uh, they weren't answering the door for some reason, so he, he let himself in, and he saw Mrs. Wesley, this is John Wesley's wife, dragging him by his hair on the floor. She was a kook. Um, you probably have read of the struggles that he had living with, with, with what, what was her first name? Was it, um, I know Susan was his mother, but um, I don't remember what John Wesley's wife's name was. Another time, Wesley uh, in Whitfield, of course, they had this controversy over perfectionism. And Wesley was advocating the position that a person can so mature spiritually that they can actually eradicate sin in their life and they can be practically sinless. And Whitfield says, that's foolishness. Well, Wesley says... I'll introduce you to somebody who has reached that state of perfection. So Wesley and Whitfield go over to the home of this individual. And uh, Whitfield is asking him questions and talking with him. And he had an idea. He saw a bucket over there of water. So he went over there and he dunked in a, a pan full of water, cold water. And, he, and, he, and he's, he's nobody knew what he was exactly up to, but he's talking to the man and he's asking him questions about the scriptures and, you know, how can you not sin and so on. And then he took the pen and he whipped the water right in his face. And the guy started cussing and swearing. He says, Mr. Wesley, did not I tell you 
that it's impossible to live in this lifetime without sinning. The scripture says, no man lives that doesn't sin. And here it is, right before your eyes. There's a sin. This man is a sinner. Though saved by grace, not all sin has yet been eradicated from him until the time of his home calling or the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, I hope that I can, I could have in some ways impacted you uh, through the legacy of George Whitfield that we might have a greater appreciation for preaching of the word, that we might have the confidence of what the word of God can do in the lives of men. Hundreds and hundreds of people were converted by sheer preaching. There was no uh, fancy footing here. There was no gimmicks. There was no allurements. It was just plain gospel preaching. And that's what I want to kind of preach on or, or, or talk to you about tonight. What is true biblical preaching? And how, how do people actually get converted? What is the process in which the word of God operates in the soul of man and brings about conversion experience? And I think Whitfield is a good model of someone that totally dependent on the word and not on anything other then as we know in later generations where we've got the anxious seat and people are being called forward and, and that type of thing, and now we're getting into the, the era of decisional regeneration and that type of thing, and we want to counteract that and try to show the more biblical way of preaching and how we actually do interact with, with souls and how we do uh, present the gospel in totality and how we can, in most evangelism, I probably, I would say definitely, goes on one-on-one. -on -one. I bet you have witnessed to more people than you have preached to more unsaved people, obviously. So personal evangelism is, is, like, is no doubt more important in some ways than even you know, public gospel preaching, uh, evangelistic preaching, because you're going to reach more people on your, in your everyday business and travels if you're so desirous of getting the gospel out then you will be in the pews. You're not going to bring them in. It just happens to be the way things are these days. People are aloof. They, they are estranged from, quote, churches and church people in church settings. So what do we do? Become an emerging church? Far be it from us that we would try to lower the bar or the standard of, of gospel Christianity and try to allure them with something that's not really ever going to bring them into the kingdom. If God's not going to save them, God's not going to save them. We can't change the method for some phony results. We don't want to preach a false gospel or we're going to have false disciples. You're going to fill your pews with Philistines and you're going to have a congregation that doesn't have the spirit of the new covenant within them. So they're not going to be able to understand the word of God and won't have spiritual discernment to know the difference between righteousness or evil because they don't have the new nature that comes with the new birth. And that new birth comes, as Peter says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Yes, Mr. Whitfield was one that believed in the power of the gospel. And he wasn't always successful, if, if you want to call it success, wherever he went. We shouldn't base our, you know, I do outdoor preaching, and many people have asked me, are you seeing a lot of fruit? Are you seeing a lot of fruit? You know, that question kind of turns me off in a lot of ways because I know what they're looking for. How many notches do I have in my gun? I don't care to know 
That's what's important to me, and don't misunderstand me. But what is important is that the gospel be preached, that the precious seed be sown. And if it falls by the wayside, or if it falls on rocky ground, or it falls among thorns, praise God the gospel was preached. That's what really matters. Whether it's you or I, whoever. As a matter of fact, if it's the, the First Baptist Church down the street that has a, an Arminian twist to things, if he's preaching Christ crucified and salvation by grace through faith, I'm saying hallelujah and I'm praising God that the gospel is being preached. Even though I differ with him very definitely on some of our methodologies and in some of the nuances of things, but I have to look at the big picture. If Christ is being preached, though they may be striking the rock instead of speaking to it, if you will, God can still bring results out because he's sovereign and he'll do what he wills. We know of a brother that was saved in a Catholic mass because why? The word of God was read. You wouldn't think that ordinarily, would you? But I know you're saying, amen, God is able to use his word no matter what the setting may be. It's the word and it's the spirit of God that generates life into the soul of man. And that's exactly how Whitfield got saved by reading that book, The, soul, the, the, uh, the Life of God in the Soul of Man. And how can that gap be bridged between our alienation from a holy God it's only through the preaching of the gospel and Mr. Whitfield is one of those men of the faith who should still be speaking to us so that we can be encouraged what power lies in that gospel that we all love and proclaim amen